Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast created to help you succeed, especially if you create or market or price innovative products. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor, and I know a little bit about pricing. Today is going to be a treat because we're joined by Troy Kirby. Troy runs a podcast and blog called The Dow of Sports. That's right. He's into the business of sports. If you're a sports fan, there'll certainly be some insights here. And if you're not a sports fan, most of what we discuss also applies to concerts and events and things that you go to. Welcome, Troy. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. First, how'd you get into such a fun field? I want this job. You know, um, if if I were to look at uh, what actually got me into sports or sports business, I still think back to um, the fact that I was working uh, just in the PR department for uh, athletic department at Seattle University, and um, the phone kept ringing down the way. Um, it just was driving me nuts, and I couldn't handle it. And so I went up to find out why the phone was ringing, and it turned out that our facilities guy at our Division II uh, program there was supposed to answer the phone for tickets. And what happened was was – He didn't want to answer the phone, and surprisingly enough, we only had like one season ticket that was uh, purchased each year by a a family member of one of the teams, and there were only about 17 people literally going to basketball games. So I went to the athletic director and said, I would like a phone so that I can answer it and so that we can sell some tickets. And, you know, I'd had some prior experience with a minor league soccer team before, but, you know, just selling the tickets. And he said, well, it cost $200 for a phone. And I said, you know, I'll give you two hundred dollars. I'll literally walk to the ATM and get you two hundred dollars just to have the phone. And he goes, ah, don't do that. Just uh, here, I'll I'll get you a phone. So you know, sometimes uh, if you if you put it in front of them, uh, sometimes people will finally do the right things. And what was funny was that year. Uh, we actually, because I started getting aggressive on phone calls, we actually sold out, you know, pretty much the gym, you know, because we also targeted people that were not uh, sports fans. And that's one lesson that I would have for anybody out there is that the majority of people that come to your events, uh, if you're doing sports, are not sports fans. And that's a huge lesson to learn because way too many people want to think of it as, you know, much like a sports bar. Uh, The sports bars usually fail because sports bars always think they'll just always have something on and they forget that people don't always kind of show up to the big game unless it's the big game. So you have to have other programming. Buffalo Wild Wings is a great example of that. So, um, you know, as I kind of delved into it and uh, got more and more excited about not only sports business, but about sports sales, um, that's really where. I started to uh, kind of think about um, what were some of the things that I was not seeing in the marketplace, especially when it came to education. Um, I was calling people randomly uh, to find out what they were doing. And then um, over the summer of 2012, um, my friend uh, Andrew Olette, who is a comedian, goes around, has done 50 states in 50 days, these kind of uh, crazy uh, comedian shows. Well, he happened to actually have a podcast interview with the Octomom. It was going to be in Tacoma, Washington. And he goes, I don't know what to ask her. And I happened to be around. So I said, I'll sit down and, you know, sit and chat. And here he only had had, um, you know, uh, like a requirement of uh, five minutes that she was going to answer questions. And apparently he was the only person that got 
that interview with her. But uh, by me actually continuing to ask questions and not focusing on what she probably didn't want to focus on, but actually just asking her stuff about her life, her kids, and you know what she thought about the world, we actually got, I think, about 25 minutes. So we went from five minutes to 25 minutes. And I started thinking, wow, this would be great if I did this um, you know, for the sports industry. So I started interviewing my friends. And uh, since about October 2012, um, I've done over 768 uh, and counting uh, episodes of the podcast. It reaches about 15,000 uh, internationally um, month each month. And I think that, you know, what I like about it is I'll hear from young people, but also hear from people that have been in the industry 15 years or 20 years, or 25, that, you know, tell them that they think it's a valued resource, which I think is the best part. Absolutely. It's always about touching lives and helping people be more successful. Okay. So stupid question for you. You guys say the Dow of sports, but it's spelled the Tau of sports. Okay. Well, first off, um, it is actually uh, spelled either way because, or pronounced either way because this is a Chinese word. And the reason I know about this word is because I was talking to a friend in uh, September of 2012, walking through uh, San Francisco's Chinatown, and on the edge there was a homeless guy that uh, you know overheard us and said, "You should call it the Dow of Sports. Dow of Sports." And I said, okay. And then I gave him 20, 25 bucks. So I figured I paid for the licensing of it. So I haven't seen him since, so I can't pay him more. But um, what it means is all things flow from within. So it was, you know, maybe a little metaphysical, but it, um, you know, it's caught on. And what I thought uh, was great about it was that it actually created the question, which a lot of people uh, in marketing will tell you is a kind of a dramatic thing. You have to have people continue to talk about it and continue to question what it is, but also uh, continue to be interested. And by its name being a little off or challenging to where they say Tao or Dow, it actually has caused people to not only ask me, but uh, continue to investigate. And um, I, I think that's all you can hope for, especially when it grows organically. And I didn't really have any money to uh, spend very much, I guess, on you know marketing in general. Yeah, I think it's a great name because it certainly captures people's attention and it's memorable. So. Okay, you used to do some pretty big keynotes, um, usually in the ticket space. I'm really curious, what message did you share when you were out talking to them? Well, uh, the keynotes were interesting because um, the keynotes for me, um, a lot of times I would talk with uh, hands-on experience of actually being in, you know, tickets. A lot of times, especially in the college space, uh, college has never taken uh, ticket sales that seriously. Uh, that may be surprising, but a lot of times they'll take development seriously. And so a lot of times when you have uh, people in the ticket office, they've been almost kind of suppressed and they've allowed people that are, you know, development officers or marketing, which college de- uh, kind of. Uh, gravitates up. Those are the people that ends up, end up becoming athletic directors, not ticket folks. Um, they they end up uh, not having as much say over even ticket pricing. So I started to become an advocate against uh, discounting pricing. I don't like discounts at all, and I don't like freebies, which puts me at odds with a lot of marketing directors and development officers at college um, athletic departments because. 
they're used to undercutting the ticket uh, side of it because they achieve their goals. So their goals are, if I'm a marketing director, I care about attendance. And if I'm a um, development officer, I care about donations. So I don't care about ticket revenue. And a lot of times you'll see people who are um, in the ticket space uh, in college athletic ticketing who, by the way, are not paid commission. So a lot of times they're paid, you know, 30, 40,000 and handle, you know, $30 million worth of inventory sometimes. And you'll see them kind of uh, almost told that, you know, this thing would happen without them. And so I was really a strong advocate for uh, ticket salespeople, especially on the college side to begin with, um, and would really kind of, um, you know, take some people to task about uh, eroding their demand marketplace and their even their value of their ticket. And I think that that's actually, you know, still rang true. Um, it took us a lot of time, um, but within two years, um, we had enough, um, you know, leeway in the college uh association space, a college, uh, association. So every year there, there's this program called NACTA, which has about 7,000 college administrators each year, but a lot of, uh, ticket folks were not even invited or wouldn't even have the, um, budget to go. They were always considered kind of back of mind, not really somebody that we want to professionally develop. And I was uh, really, I've really become somebody that said that's not, how we want to run things. And so I just pestered people until the fact to where they finally created with us NATSO. And that's the National Association of Athletic Ticket Sales and Operations. But, you know, when we created it, they started it late and they said, well, there's no way you'll get 25 people to this event or 25 members, et cetera. And so I called every single athletic ticket office and I had about 210 members that first year. And I wasn't the only person doing this. I mean, there's a whole board of people, but you've got to find like-minded people that want to advocate. And we had over 100 attendees to our first conference. And I think that it started to gain respect uh, because of the fact that we started talking about things like pricing. We started talking about things that uh, really mattered about not diluting your ticket price to undercut you know, to whatever, but I'll give you a good example. And this happened last year at, um, in Dallas at NACTA, NATSO in 2016, um, they gave a huge award to a development officer who was one of many for over a 10 year period, but he's the one that got a donor to sign on the dotted line, uh, for $10 million, uh, for a $10 million gift. And so he, you know, this entire legacy of 10 years to get $10 million, and that person got a, you know, development officer of the year for athletics, and he's considered a front runner for a lot of athletic departments to, to be the athletic director. Case in point, I know uh, Rob Kelly, who's the associate AD at Notre Dame, who handles $76 million worth of inventory for tickets at Notre Dame and is not considered, at least in my mind, a front runner for a lot of positions especially when they come to athletic uh, director positions because people don't value it the same way. And that's part of that culture shift that I hope, whether it's uh, keynote speaking engagements or, uh, you know, whether or not it's advocacy that we change. It's just silly to me to see how those who actually produce the most product or the most, uh, you know, revenue are typically considered sometimes 
the least favorable within the athletic department or a lot of those stages. So I think that uh, that's where, you know, when it comes to keynote speeches, when it comes to, you know, going to those things, I've just been a heavily advocate of you've got to change this. This is silly. This doesn't work. So this is fascinating, Troy, because. First off, let me say, I am a huge Ohio State football fan. That is the only sport that I care about, and I buy tickets every year. So I want to know everything you know about Ohio State athletics and how they charge for tickets. Uh, And my ticket prices go up every year, but I would pay a much bigger number than they charge me, which is amazing, right? Especially if they gave me a choice for better seats, I would pay them a lot more money. Now, what you were talking about and, and what I found so fascinating was... It's about the goal. Now, different people have different goals. Does the university or the athletic department have a singular goal? Because if the singular goal is is revenue, then I think you're dead on right. And why are we not paying more attention to the tickets? But could the singular goal be something else like goodwill for the university? Not sure how we quantify that, though. I'm glad that you brought up Ohio State because I have a few pricing examples with them. Uh, Number one, their athletic director is a great guy, uh, Gene Smith, but he's a facilities guy. So but he's he's, you know, one of the people that is, you know, revered through college athletics and should be. And uh, his deputy director, I've known a few times, actually went to Australia uh, on the same, um, you know, key uh, sport fan summit with him. Uh, Martin Jarman, uh, great guy. And I just, you know, I think that part of that is they're still always focused on the development gifting side because that development gifting side sometimes also enhances um, the endowments for a university over what they consider somewhat of a transient of ticket sales. Now, with Big uh, Ten football or Big Ten sports, it's a little easier to say, Hey, you know, these people are investing, you know, with their tickets because you have a lot of, you know, donor requirements that kind of go into that. Right. So you actually have it where there's a lot of PSLs, personal seat licenses. But I'll uh, give you an example. So um, 2015 in San Francisco, uh, we had the seat conference, which is a technology conference. And I had um, actually, you know, randomly sat next to two Ohio State guys uh, that were telling me that there was no real secondary market for uh, the Ohio State football tickets. And I said, that's actually not true. And I can show you. So I worked with my contacts. And about 15 minutes later, I came up with uh, their entire secondary market pricing, their inventory on the market, as well as where it went, how, how fast it went and when it went. Um, and it was a giant spreadsheet that uh, literally showed over the last five years. Um, and they said, wow, those prices are even higher than what we charge. I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the, that's the problem is there's still a fundamental misunderstanding. Now, there are a few people that are you know, ticket folks that are in college athletics, but usually they don't get the same play, I guess. Uh, University of Miami is one. I think Florida is another, but there's very few. And when they don't respect the ticket officer, don't know about the ticket officer, don't understand the ticket office in the same sense, I think that it allows for 
kind of, and I wouldn't say everybody's like this. I think, you know, Gene Smith is a very smart man, so I would never, you know, kind of suggest otherwise, but I definitely think that there's a, it's back of mind or back of the show. And it's not understanding what people are willing to pay. Plus, a lot of times people see ticket sales and especially at public universities as a harder thing to raise prices for. You see this with Nebraska currently is Nebraska has been sold out since the 1960s in football. They have, you know, like 376 consecutive sellouts. But you see fans that uh, complain every year because the ticket prices have gone up. Because even though you can charge that, you're still a public entity, and uh, there is a kind of defining line to where, you know, when working in you know the public sector for public universities, there is a defining line to where they don't really think that you should charge too much. I actually had this experience myself um, at Eastern Washington University, uh, home of the red turf. So, you know, the first year that I was there as a student in 2003, um, I decided to, you know, go tailgate with some friends. We showed up two hours before the game and a cop showed up, campus police, and they said, what are you doing here? I said, well, we're tailgating. And they said, yeah, but nobody else is here. Come back 10 minutes before the game. That's when it starts. And that was kind of the mentality. <laughs> well, but it's a small college, you know, whatever. And when we got back uh, to Eastern Washington University, when I came back in 2008 as their ticket manager, um, the idea was we were still giving away to donors to where they were uh, giving us $300 or $200 worth you know, of donation, and they were getting about $6,000 worth of tickets. So you know, they got season tickets to everything. And so as an alumnus, I had to go before – uh, their donor board and say, we're not doing that and pull that out. And so when we ripped them out, everyone said, no one will come because, you know, you're not giving away free tickets. And you know, what's funny is we actually got more people to come and more people to pay. And once people started seeing that they were energized and then we installed red turf where everyone uh, became an interior decorator, you know, and thought that it wouldn't work with the track and, you know, red turf, why would you do this, whatever. It's the only time that Eastern Washington University has been in the New York Times, only time that I've seen people from Japan, from Japanese television actually film it. And then we actually have people that went down to the ticket office. So there's uh, an alumnus, Michael Ruse, uh, who played in the NFL for about, I want to say, 13 years. And... He's the one that gave one of the bigger donations to it, like 500000 And I always told him he was my best ticket salesperson. And, you know, he, uh, you know, was what galvanized um, our entire, you know, school. So we actually had, you know, people actually care about Red Turf. Because once you have a maligned logo in Collinwood, which is over in um, Australia, which is an Australian rules football league team, is a perfect example of this. They have a logo called the Magpie. So everybody hates on the Magpie, except if you're a part of Collinwood and then you feel really defensive and you feel protective. And this is exactly what the red turf is to where it's it, when people bash on it, you're protective of it, whatever. Well, our first game was against, uh, with the red turf was against our uh, chief rival, which is Montana. And we had never sold out the stadium other than Montana games. And that was only because our administrators would consign you know, about 5,000 tickets of our 10,000 capacity 
to the University of Montana. So they would actually come over with signs and say, you know, this is Washington's Grizzly Stadium. So, you know, like basically telling us, no, we own the stadium too. So my my point and kind of taking to, you know, finite demand is I actually held back those tickets and I actually restricted it to where unless you were a season ticket holder, unless you were, you know, a donor, you weren't able to purchase single game tickets until, you know, 15 days before the game. So this was like, you know, until September 2nd. Well, what we found was suddenly people that were never going to buy our product who are alumnus suddenly bought it because not only did they get the biggest game of the year, but our alumnus also bought in extra tickets because they wanted to keep Montana, their rival fans, out of the game. <laughs> we sold out the entire thing, and I actually had uh, the University of Montana fans actually complain to the NCAA about me, our conference office. They flooded one of the, um, you know, the standard ticket uh, offices, which was um, Tickets West, like a mini Ticketmaster, with complaints about how horrible we were. I did my job, and then they started on a sellout streak from there. Now, I can't claim that I'm the reason they actually won the national title that year. I did no blocking. <laughs> but at the same time, it still carried me over to the idea of what is pricing, what is value in your pricing, and what do you do in order to make sure that you you know reduce the discounts, reduce the things that are actually going to hurt you in the long term. The problem is way too many people don't think, especially in tickets, about the dispassionate fan, the person that is only there for that one game. And how do you actually measure against those actual passionate fans? Because everyone acts like everyone's absolutely passionate in sports in America. Uh, I'm going to tell you, after being in Australia, I see the difference between crazy sports fan and here. <laughs> crazy sports fan there, they have people that literally will give them money and never step foot in the stadium and never even get anything out of it because they're supporting their team. Hmm. That's a totally different mindset than, you know, Americans who are like, well, what do I get out of it? You know, so yeah. I think that that, you know, that really kind of built, um, you know, kind of my archetype of what um, I thought demand was. And then getting back to Ohio State and getting back to that education, I think that's where it comes to NASA or, you know, really what we do with the Dow of Sports is, you know, I'll interview folks and we'll have that discussion point. Yeah. And I don't think that discussion point was happening before. I've actually had a lot of development officers who have reached out to me and gone, you know, I never really thought of that prior. And getting them on the secondary market or even understanding the secondary market is still a challenge. Um, I had a lot of blowback when I found uh, two consolidators. Um, consolidation for um, secondary market is somebody that either as a company will buy up all of the tickets and then meter them out to make sure they have, uh, I guess, more efficient pricing. So it's not street guys, but it's Wall Street trader looking guys. So And they won't just dump them all in the market, but they'll meter out a few at a time. Um, or you'll have a consolidator that has a band of many, which is a lot of brokers that kind of group buy under one giant umbrella and keep to certain standards. And those were things that were not happening in the secondary. So when they started to happen, those were the people that I invited out uh, to be a part of those discussions um, with college athletic departments because I want that education to be, no, there is more value for your product. And a lot of times these folks are selling in ways that you should, 
but you're still going to have people at the top resistant to or people that think that people still buy from phone calls, which is another matter itself. I find this so fascinating, uh, but there are two points I want to take from that that you just uh, explained to us. First point is I would consider it a huge honor if I could get all Michigan fans to hate me. Second point would be, though, I think it's easy to sell tickets at Ohio State. But when you start talking about Eastern Washington University, where we're not selling out games and we've got to find ways to get people into it now, instead of saying, how do I charge or what's the price? You're now on the other side of that saying, how do I build up value? How do I get people wanting to buy? And I think you did a phenomenal job at building this relationship with the university so that people truly wanted to be part of it. I think that was fantastic. And, and the fact that they won didn't hurt. But the red turf and and building the value in phenomenal. And, and that's a lesson that our product people should be listening to is, you know, we, we most of our listeners here build technology products and they're not there saying, well, gee, I've got this limited supply and an unlimited demand. And so I could charge ridiculously high prices. But they are thinking, how do we continue to add value? So I, I love what you just did. I thought that was great. Here's what I'll say as a follow-up. Selling tickets even at Ohio State is the hardest job in the world. And the reason it's the hardest job in the world is everyone thinks it should be automatic and easy. And the problem that you have with it is not necessarily pricing or distribution, but you have the fact that you're more accessible and that people judge things that are out of your control. So, you know, I mean, let's assume that everyone just decided that, you know, uh, at the, I guess, the Intel plant, that uh, chips were uh, chips were losers this year. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, yep. you have this weird negative that doesn't even have anything to do with whether or not you're supposed to sell tickets. And at Ohio State, the expectations are so high that you have to sell tickets, you know, that you you must sell tickets. So even if they're I mean, they're, I'll give you an example is Ohio State actually had a, you know, um, uh, inquiry like two years ago because they found out that 10 percent of their tickets were comped. So they were actually giving away a certain amount of tickets, even at Ohio State. And whether or not, you know, you believe in, you know, comp tickets or whatever, it still happens, even at the big house, even in, even in Michigan. So um, but the idea is if you're not sold out, what's the problem? So let's pretend that. Your compact and uh, it's 1989, right? Because I, I watched uh, Silicon uh, Cowboys, a documentary about compact, mm -hmm. and they were absolutely killing it, murdering it every single year. And then one year, they didn't because they had Dell as a challenger, etc. All of a sudden, everything's Harry Carey, and we got to get rid of the CEO. Now the CEO has been, you know, making sure that you make money hand over fist before then, but all of a sudden you got to get rid of them. And that's where, you know, in sports or ticket sales in general, um, it is the hardest thing. I mean, mainly because I challenge anybody to do it because it is uh, because you're dealing with so many different not only tastes but habits and the way that people react to things and people view sellouts in a totally different manner than they do, um, you know, even even 5,000 seats of a 100,000 seat stadium yep. that's empty. They don't view it the same way. And they literally uh, will change their opinion based on uh, that perception. 
And, you know, unfortunately, you also get the people that are uh, ultimate sports fans that will suggest that you should comp tickets away because they want to see more people there. And they don't realize that if I'm sitting next to somebody and I paid $500 for that ticket and they paid zero or they paid a dollar, that that person's going to end up talking to me. And I'll give you an example of that. This happened actually at you know, Eastern after I left, is that uh, two people uh, received uh, you know, field passes and they didn't pay anything for them and they weren't donors. They happened to stand next to one of the biggest donors uh, that we had. And tell him how stupid it was that he paid because they didn't pay and they wouldn't pay for this product and how dumb he was. I mean, think about that. So you've now had somebody affect your product mainly because once they don't value it, they want to make everyone else who's around them that did maybe pay for it to feel like a sucker. And that's one of the differences that you have when you have product is that a lot of times you don't have the communication between uh, folks that are, I guess – you know, paying different prices. So if you have them that elbow to elbow democracy, that to me, it's a little thing. I mean, maybe you might see that at Comic-Con to where people might pay different prices uh, for, and I've heard this happening when you go on the floor there, you know, some people will pay a different price for that action figure when it's first out. And then if they're still, they're trying to clear inventory later, maybe they'll pay a different price. Mm -hmm. And you have a little of that with hardline products, but it's still not the same. Unfortunately, we are almost out of time here. I have I have so much enjoyed listening to you chat with us. Um, thank you so much for your time. If anyone wants to contact you, how can they do that? Well, they can do so at sportsdow.com, so sportstao.com, or Troy at sportsdow.com. And, Mark, I really appreciate this. Uh, you know, I've been following you a long time, and um, I've enjoyed many of your stories, uh, especially that uh, final keynote one that you had on my podcast. So, <laughs> But, uh, no, I, I think that it's uh, really good in the sports world to understand uh, pricing. Um, I don't think that they do it as effectively as they can. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the fact that still a lot of times with distribution channels, sports are still reliant on uh, phone calls instead of doing digital stuff, mainly because those who are bred on phone call sales, uh, you know, they want to still keep control or they want to make sure that they have a, a place in the canon. Uh, and it would be a lot harder if all of a sudden everything turned over to Google overnight, even though that might be more efficient. You know, you'll still see sports teams reliant on the things that uh, cost the team, but not so much the executive. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your time, but I mean, there's plenty more to talk about at certain points. Um, someday we'll have to do that. And uh, it certainly sounds like there's a business opportunity there. Definitely so. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. And to our listeners, I hope you guys enjoyed that one as much as I did. We'd love to hear from you as always. Uh, feel free to send your questions or comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. And don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live. 